And I was just trying to think about dreams. And the first thing I thought to my mind is, if you could think for a moment, what is, when you think about a movie that's about dreams, what's the first one that comes to mind? Now, I know a lot of times when a pastor, a preacher up here will ask a question, usually the next question asks, so turn to your neighbor and share it. No, we're not going to do that today. So the introverts, I've learned that 50% of the population are introverts, so we're not going to do that. But then just to yourself, to your mind thinking about it, and when I think about a movie that's about dreams, what's the first one that comes to mind? It could be low back, before we get too much, the first one could be thinking about Wizard of Oz. Or Alice in Wonderland. I didn't even know that was a dream because I didn't get to the end and I found out it was a dream and sorry to spoil it if you didn't see that yet. But, the, but more than likely, the one that we thought and the voice that came to my mind was the movie Inception. And I looked at it, that was 13 years ago. But when I compare things, movies or just about dreams in general, I realized dreams, they're kind of weird. I mean, any kind of dreams that we've had, that we've thought about even ourselves, it's like, what's happening? And I remember going to see that movie Inception, walking out of the theater. The first thing that I did was go to my phone, I went to Wikipedia, looked up the plot. Because I'm like, what did I just read? I didn't, like, what did I just see? I didn't understand what was going on. And in the, in the dream that we looked at last week, when Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. And he was thinking, what happened? What's the plot? I, I don't understand what's going on. So he goes to all the wise men. He's like, okay, you guys have to tell me, what did I just see? And they couldn't give him an answer. So, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is getting angry and furious. So all the wise men, you're all going to die. And then Daniel says, oh, no, no, wait, because he's one of the things. Let me figure this out. So he, Daniel goes with his prayer buddies. They go pray to God, and God gives them the answer. Not just the prayer part, but the interpretation, the plot to explain what he just saw, because dreams are just kind of weird. Because we're, we're still continuing in this series called Between Two Worlds. What does it mean when us, as Jesus followers, are living in a world that just countercultural with things that we just believe in, and how are we supposed to navigate that? In the last three weeks, Pastor Josh has been going through with us, how, when we're living between two worlds, worlds, do you remember to seek God with wisdom for wisdom and power? to be resolved in our faith towards him, towards God, and to not compromise our commitments and values as well. But as we were going through these last three weeks and about just trying to do what they were doing in the Bible, what Daniel and his friends were doing, I think it would have been okay and normal if you felt what I felt, that there was a little bit of tension, maybe a little bit of struggle. That how, did, how did they do that? How were they able to so, so, seem so simply be able to not compromise, to stay committed, and to, to be so resilient and resolved in their faith? And in today's passage, what we're going to go into is they're going to show us what they had. And it's in one word, in the word control. They were able to believe, they had to do what they did was because they believed the God that they worship, he's still in control. But then do we believe that, though? Do we believe that God is in control? Maybe when, or even in the midst of all the freedom, all the choices that we may have in our lives, do we even see that God is in control of my life? And to a certain extent, I was the one who chose to wake up this morning to come to church. You or I chose, you chose that seat to where you're going to be in. Or maybe you be here in worship, like, or just in life. When things seem to be going well in my own life, yeah, I could probably have an easier time to believe that God, yes, he is in control. 
But what about those moments when our lives are not in control? Do we still believe that he's still in control? When the plans that we had did something unexpected, they did not plan out the way we wanted it to be. We've been enjoying our job and working remotely. All of a sudden, the boss calls you back in, and your schedule is all just ruined. Or your kids are just acting up one day, and things are just out of, like, like what my own personal control. Can we, when things are not going well, when we are discouraged, can we still say, God, is it still in control? That's a little a lot harder then, isn't it? But what we're learning, though, in Daniel is that when we're living in between two worlds, it's actually okay when our lives seemingly are out of control. So long, it's one caveat, and this is what they knew, the God that I worship, the God that we worship, the God that we just sung to, that he is still in control in our lives. I love how A.W. Tozer, pastor and author, he says this in one of the quotes. I'll have it on the screen. He says, whenever I travel in an airplane, I instinctively try to help the pilot by leaning to the left and then leaning to the right. We are just as silly as that when it comes to the things of God. God has this master plan. He, he's, he was present in the past, he's present in the now, and he's present in the future all at the same moment. He knows all. He's already there. I love what the psalmist even says in Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. Do we believe that? That our God, the one we just sung songs to, he's actually in heaven. He does whatever he wants. He does whatever he pleases because he exists outside of the time that you and I even know that it even exists. God does not get surprised. I mean, I'm trying to imagine when he was seeing his son going to the cross and being sacrificed, he didn't go, oops, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. I, I guess we can do a plan of salvation that way. And I'm just going to roll it. No, he knew that was part of his plan. It was part of the plan for his son to be crushed for our sake, that he was going to make him who knew no sin, that you and I could be declared righteous. That was all part of God's plan. There was no surprise. And this is my main point for today. Because if God can put everything together, that we can see all the way in history, all the way up until now, that I don't think it's far of, too far of a stretch to believe then that he can put things in our lives together in place to where they are. Because sometimes God changes our plans because his plans are better. Sometimes he takes things out of my control because his control is better. Sometimes he closes that door in front of me because he needs to reroute me to where he needs me to be for his own glory. And so then when bad things happen to good people, when there is evil around us in our own lives, when you and I are discouraged, when there is injustice in the world, we can still believe that God is in control because when he is in control, we won't see these opportunities to be be complaining, but we see uh, these issues as an opportunity for a potential for his glory. Daniel and his friends, they had every reason to complain. I mean, imagine as kids growing up in Jerusalem, it's like, you know, when I grow up, I can't wait to be exiled in Babylon. No, that's not what they thought. All the dreams that they had are all gone, marched away. They didn't do anything wrong. 
I mean, it was the sins of their country. That's why they were exiled, marched away in chains across the desert over into Babylon, given to his new diet, given to a new language. They tried to take away their identity, gave, took away their name, tried to take away their culture. I mean, and they just tried to survive. If you cannot be just like one of us, then you are not going to be able to fit in. And they were, had all the reasons to complain, but they knew that God was in control. And so when evil was happening to them, they could see that our God is in control. And then this next section of Scripture that we're going to in Daniel chapter 2, we see the faithfulness of God. Because when we look back into history and we see how God has been putting everything together, he's still going to be putting things together even for us in the future. And they could be able to use that as a reminder of over time. Now, when we read today's passage in Daniel chapter 2, I want us to come from a perspective as if you're hearing this for the first time, as if you were King Nebuchadnezzar, because they, they don't know the interpretation yet. They haven't lived out through history. And for us, we know how history matches up with what it's about to say. But try to imagine, okay, they, they're in this kingdom. They're hearing this for the very first time, and they're going to get the future of what's going to happen. And King Nebuchadnezzar finally gets somebody to explain to them what this dream is about. And we see the first part, and it'll be three chunks. First is the revelation. But we also see this, the main point in this part is that it's not about me. In verse 31 to 33, I'm going to read this for us. It says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and his appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, Daniel here has two main tasks. First, he had to reveal the dream, and then he had to interpret it. Now, so when King Nebuchadnezzar went to the wise men and said, okay, what is the interpretation of the dream? They went to King Nebuchadnezzar, what was your dream? They said, I'm not going to tell you. Okay, now that's kind of hard. <laughs> he didn't tell them what, what he saw. And, and so in the same way, Daniel was like, okay, not only did he have to figure out what the, the dream was, now he has to get the interpretation. But then, of course, he got that, because when they were praying together in the last chapter, God, even with his friends, God only gave it to Daniel. This is what the interpretation is and the dream, but you tell the king what this is. And what he saw, what Nebuchadnezzar, for the first time, was that he was frightened. This was the movie. Why would he be frightened? Because he saw an image that was exceedingly great. At this point, King Nebuchadnezzar, he is the greatest guy that has ever existed in history. He, I mean, he's the most powerful person. Everybody looks up to him. He's never been afraid. My kingdom, he's thinking, it's going to last forever. It's made of gold. I mean, look at how far we're reaching out to our, our, our borders. And for, for the first time, he's feeling, oh, my gosh. He's looking up. I'm not that big. And he's feeling too small. And he's frightened. And he looks at this image, and it has decreasing of value from the top, from gold to silver to bronze to iron, and then the feet of just clay and this mixture of iron. And then the division continues in verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay 
and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff, chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. The stone comes out of nowhere, one perfect shot. It doesn't hit the top, the silver, bronze, or any part, right at the feet where the most brittle part of the clay and it collapses. And what's interesting, when it collapses, the chafe, like, when metals fall, it just breaks into pieces. It doesn't get into deteriorating of this powder-like substance where it's just blown away, where it does not even exist anymore. And all that is left is the stone, and the stone becomes a great mountain. Now, that's a weird dream. What does it mean? This is where we second section, the interpretation. You see Daniel's courage here in his interpretation. In verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I want to pause right there. We. Now this, this we is not we as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three friends, they did not get the vision when, when they were praying. This we means Daniel and God. God now Daniel said, no, I know the vision. He didn't say I, but we, me and God will tell you this because he told me what happened. I know there's a lot of talk now in our modern day about artificial intelligence and how chat GPT is pretty amazing. Artificial intelligence is one thing, but do you guys know what we have access to something better called supernatural intelligence? That we can go to God in prayer for something even beyond what can be done by human hands? And that's how he got this information, what he was able to use in prayer. So in verse 37, he explains this prayer explain this image or this dream. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. Daniel here is incredibly courageous. Not just being the one to volunteer. Okay, King, let me try. Let me be able to speak up to tell you what tell you what this dream is. But in this dream itself, he tells the king, you know, you're only sitting on that throne that you think is so high and mighty. It's because my God that I worship puts you there. That's a really bold statement to be able to say. And to say that. And then what did he tell him? You, King, that gold part. That's you. Gold represents Babylon. And he's about to show that there's going to be rise and the falling of other just nations right after him. And remember, in the context, he still thinks no one's ever going to conquer us, but there's something more inferior coming that is even going to take you over as well. And where scripture is clear, that we know that gold equates to Babylon. We're not going to be able, we don't need to just speculate at all. But what about the rest of the vision and what he's able to see? In verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Now, in hindsight and history, we can kind of see 
what happened. Hindsight's always 20-20. There were two inferior kingdoms next to Babylon during the time, the Medes and the Persians. Both of them could not conquer Babylon on their own. So what did they do? They say, hey, we'll make an alliance. We'll come together. Two inferior kingdoms represented by the two in the silver, two arms coming together in one torso. Eventually, they were the ones who take over Babylon. We know that in history. It was the Medo-Persians. I mean, Daniel would see that come to fruition in his life because it was the Medo-Persians were the ones that threw him into the lion's den a little, little bit later, a few chapters later. And then what, so then they're waiting for him. Okay, after these two inferior kingdoms come together, there was to be another kingdom that takes him over. We learn from history that kingdom was the Greco-Roman Empire by Alexander the Great. Again, they didn't know this. A few years, hundreds of years later, they were just waiting. But then there's still iron. In verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks, in, breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all things. The, so then after that empire takes over, another one comes, and we know that to be the Roman Empire. Daniel has just predicted and let, letting people know in their time, around 600 B.C., look after for these kingdoms. After Babylon, there's going to be another, and then another, and then the Roman one. But God is still in control. None of these are Jewish nations. And they're still living under the reign of these other empires, but God is still in control. Because he knows all this is going to happen. In verse 41 to 43, this is where he's connecting everything to the very part, last part of, the, of this image. In 41 to 43, And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of its firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so there they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Clay is not even a metal. metal clay does not mix with metal. We see the most descriptive of all of the parts of the, the statue here and we, the interpretation is, well, these, this non-metal and this metal, they don't mix. And we know in the Roman Empire, after a while, that they try to hold everything together, it was the internal conflict that pulled them apart. So when there is unrest, look out. Something is coming. And so that's what when the Jewish readers are reading this. Okay, so when there's unrest, what comes next in verse 45? 44, sorry. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Hindsight again. Who, what was the stone that came out of nowhere? Daniel is connecting the Babylon, Babylonian Empire from around 600 B.C. 
all the way to the time of Christ. We know that Christ was a stone that came out of nowhere, born in this little town called Bethlehem from, an unwed, from a young girl that was unwed. No one saw that coming, and that was him that would be the one to crush the, the Roman Empire, the iron. Not in the ways they thought with force and power, but through his work on the cross. And this set up a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that will not deteriorate, just like the gold, silver, bronze, or iron that eventually disintegrated away. So I'm going to do a quick summary of this entire dream, this next picture here on the screen. Now, I, I'm not really good with pictures. I cut off the head. That wasn't a good thing. But we already know gold is Babylon. <laughs> but silver, the Medo-Persians, bronze, the Greeks, iron, and the Romans in the bottom, the Christ, the, the rock that came out of nowhere, striking a perfect shot right in the most brittle area and destroying it. Everything would fall and the mountain of God, this kingdom, would be the one that would come up. How does the king respond, though, after hearing of this interpretation? Now that he, he's, he's asked for it, that was his response. But we see in the third section here, in the final section that we're going through, we see the promotion. But yet, in this promotion, we see Daniel's humility. In verse 46 to 49, Then Nebuch King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The king did not question God's supernatural intelligence. He just accepted it, even though this interpretation was not in his favor. He had thought this entire time, like, hey, I, my kingdom is going to last forever, but you just told me that my kingdom is not going to last. Somebody weaker than me is going to take over everything that I have built. Yeah, and he accepted that. Because one thing that was interesting where King Nebuchadnezzar, he started to believe that God is in control. Because he's seeing how God is putting everything together. Now, when God puts things together in our own lives, do we believe what he even believes, that God is in control? And we see here that God wasn't, didn't stop working. He continued to put Daniel and his friends in place. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar could just said, oh, thanks for the dream. Now go back to your homes. No, why would he get promoted? Because God was still working there. He had to put Daniel and his friends into a position for something that we'll see in the next chapter. God was still working and moving, even in their own lives, every single moment. And they were just following along. Because it's all for going towards God's purpose. Because when we see Daniel and his friends surrounded by everything else in Babylon, 
just being influenced by their culture, influenced by the language, influenced just, just by the diets and try to change them. And they were like, okay, if we can surround them with just everything Babylonian, we could turn them into a Babylon. And they really thought that they were in control. But what they did not realize that it wasn't them that surrounded Daniel. God had put Daniel there. God had put Shadrach, Meshach, and Mendo into their midst, that he was going to use them to influence the king. That he was going to use them, and he had put them in place. He planned everything out perfectly so that, they, that King Nebuchadnezzar could see that one day God is in control. Because if God can put all of these things together, it is not too far of a stretch then to believe that God could put the things in your life, in my life, to where they need to be for his glory and for his purpose. And so when things happen to us that are not as good, we from wondering, well, God, what are you doing in my own life? We can just wait and see, God, why am I here? How are you moving me? And rather than complaining and seeing the problems, we could perhaps see potential. That we look at the history of how God has been fulfilling piece by piece and putting things together, that he is putting piece and pieces of my own life together where they need to be. And I don't want to be used by the world. I want to be used by God. And that's so those moments we can have a bit of peace in our lives and know that God, he is in control, that he is holding it all together in our own lives so that we're able to not compromise our values or commitments to God, that we could be resolved in our own faith, that we could be able to go to God in wisdom and prayer. So where do we start then? in our own lives. I'm going to have the worship team come back up as we transition our time into a time of communion. But in our own lives, do we believe that God is in control? Because if God is in control, then he had put you, you and I where we need to be in our own lives. That God had perhaps put you in your own neighborhood so that you can go, go running with a neighbor to get to know and to befriend them. That God had put you into your homes to be able to raise your children to be able to fear God. That God puts you at your workplace to be an encouragement to someone who may be feeling discouraged in their own lives. Or perhaps God has had us go through pain in our own lives so that we can relate to somebody who will go through the same pain later, so that we could be encouragement to them. Because God has put everything together. He is in control of God all that is in our lives. But do we really believe it then? Because when we are able to believe it, then we are able to be able to see that we are not, it makes it easier for us to not compromise in our commitments and our values to him. It'll make it easier for us to be able to resolve in our own faith. It'll be easier for us to be able to seek God in wisdom and in prayer. Because that is when change starts to happen in our own lives, if that's what we wanted to see when God is in control. You know, I've always been told, you know, when we want to see change in our lives, God never does it through politics. He doesn't do it through protesting. He doesn't do it through picketing. But when God does change in the world, he does it through prayer. And in our lives, when have, where have, have we been praying? Have we been seeking God when things are not going where they need to be in our own lives? Have we been going to God and saying, God, why, what is, why is everything going on? God, can you show me what this means? But it's a lot easier to do that when we believe that God is in control, to hear what we needed to hear, 
He knew you were going to be here, and he knew you were going to be later into this day. He has it all into his hands. So we need to pray more. So let me transition our time as we move into time. Pray for us as we go into a time of communion. God, we just thank you for this morning that you are still a God that is in control. That in the midst of our own lives and when things do not seem to go where they, their own way or where they need to be, that we can still believe that you're holding it all together. That when we look back into history and we see how you have orchestrated everything together, you put leaders in place to where they needed to be. You put people in positions for your glory so that they could be used by you and not used by the world. Because when you are in control, it's so much more simpler to be able to see clearly, clearly what your will is. And for those of us who feel like our future is a bit foggy, that you just give us the confidence and a reminder that you still are where you are. You're not surprised at what happens to us in our lives, but you know. Give us the patience to wait as we try to understand why things are going on the way they are. And we know for those who love you, as you promised in Romans 8, 28, all things happen for the good of those who love you, God, and we here are a group that love you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.